In America in the 1950s, there was a famous exhibition called The Family of Man. It put forward a new way of seeing the world as an alternative to the horrors of Nazism and communism. It showed hundreds of photographs of individuals from all around the world. The message was simple. We are all one world. And at the center of that world is the individual self. The man who helped design it was a refugee from Germany called Herbert Bayer. He saw it as a new kind of propaganda. Instead of being overwhelmed by dramatic stories created by those in power, the individual would make their own story out of the photographs. Bayer made a diagram to show his idea. At the center is the giant eye of the individual self, surrounded by a mass of images. It was a utopian vision of the self, selecting and arranging the fragments of images into their own story, and so becoming strong enough to withstand tyranny. Confident individuals in control of their own world. You know, parents are the same no matter time, no place. They don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes. So to you other kids all across the land, there's no need to argue. Parents just don't understand. Girl's bodily dimensions, I honk my horn just to get her attention. She said, was that for me? I said, yeah. She said, why? Is it? Come on and take a ride with the hell of a guy. On the surface, Tupac Shakur was part of the age of the individual. He believed deeply in the idea of self-expression. But he was also one of the few in the 1980s who still believed in the power of grand stories to move people and to inspire them to change the world. His mother, Afeni, had been a Black Panther, and she still believed in the idea of revolution in America. Tupac later said, the phrase Black Power had been like a lullaby when I was a kid. My mother, she would tell me these stories of things she did or saw, and it made me feel part of something. She always raised me to think I was the Black Prince of the revolution. What Afeni taught him was that the world most Americans lived in, both white and black, was an unreal fairyland that concealed the harsh reality of the power that controlled their lives. We're not being taught to deal with the world as it is. We're being taught to deal with this fairyland, which we're not even living in anymore. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sad, because I'm telling you, and it's, it should not be me telling you. It should be common knowledge. Aren't they wondering why um, death rates are going up and suicide is going up and drug abuse? Aren't they wondering? Don't they understand that more people are, I mean, more kids are being handed crack than they're being handed diplomas? I mean, I mean, it's like, you know those little things they have for the mice where they go through around the circle and there's little blocks for it and everything? Well, society is like that. They'll let you go as far as you want. But as soon as you start asking too many questions and you're ready to change, boom. By the 1980s, it was clear that the promises of the civil rights movement had not been kept in America, and the idealism of black politics fell away, and the communities divided into gangs that then turned on each other. The shooting started about, what, 76 on Melbourne? Yeah. In 76, you know, they stopped fighting, they just started shooting. 
you know, and it was something new to me. You know, we used to fight all the time. And the next minute, I'm running from gunshots. So the only thing I said to myself, say, man, are we gonna have to start doing what they doing? You know, same thing they do to us, we do to them. Do or die, stay in the house. You know, fight or stay in the house. So I wasn't gonna stay in the house for nobody. Then crack swept through the black communities in America. And Afeni Shakur finally gave up. She became addicted to crack. And Tupac found himself alone. At the end of the 1980s, he moved to California. It was supposed to be one of the most integrated parts of the country. But one night, Tupac went to a party. And he realized that white racism was re-emerging even there. There was a fight at the party. And I was like, what happened? He said the skinheads came and told, called the black people niggas and made them, they said they had to leave. And of course, there was fight. I was like, oh my God. So we were sitting there, me and my, they went home, we were sitting there talking and everything. And my friends was like, this couldn't happen in the 60s, you know? Let's figure out what to do. And he just said, I said, I know, we'll start the Black Panthers again. So we're starting the Black Panthers, but we're doing it more to fit our, our views, you know, less violent and more silent, you know, more knowledge. Tupac Shakur set out to reawaken the radicalism of the Panthers. And to do it, he was going to use himself as the central character. I hear Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A damn shame, the girl can hardly spell her name. That's not our problem, that's up to Brenda's family. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew her moms, and her dad was a junkie putting death into his arms. It's sad, because I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just because you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. She wrapped the baby up and threw him in the trash. He, she tried to sell crack, but ended up getting robbed. So she sees sex as a way of leaving hell. So she really can't complain. Prostitute fans swing. And Brenda's her name. She's got a baby. But there was another country that was also like a fairy tale land Saudi Arabia. Ever since the 1970s, billions of dollars had flooded in from the West. This vast wave of money had created a dreamlike society run by an elite where no one paid any tax. But there were those in Saudi Arabia who saw another, much more sinister reality underneath this facade. Abu Zubaydah had been born in Saudi Arabia, but he was not a Saudi. His family were Palestinian, and he quickly discovered that if you were not a part of the Saudi elite, you were nothing. He and his family were looked down on and scorned. In the 1980s, Zubaydah grew more and more angry and lonely. He began to write a special diary into which he poured out his feelings. It was special because it was written to be read by just one person in the future, himself in the year 2000. The diary is full of a growing fury about how Saudi Arabia had been taken over and corrupted by the vast wealth that had come into the society. He describes how everyone around him, including his friends, were false and treacherous. 
They pretend to be pious, but really they have no values. The money has created a society where nobody believes in anything and nothing can be trusted. Zubeda tried to lose himself in music. The singer he loved most was Christa Berg and his songs like The Lady in Red. But then at the end of the 1980s, Zubeda discovered the ideas of jihad. At that point, modern Islamism was sweeping through the Arab world. The attraction of jihad was that by losing yourself in the struggle, you could free yourself from the emptiness and the nihilism that the Western money was bringing into societies like Saudi Arabia. Abu Zubaydah travelled to the town of Peshawar on the Afghan border to lose himself in the new revolutionary struggle that was going to remake the Arab world and him. I've never seen you looking so lovely as you did tonight I've never seen you shine so bright I've never seen so many men ask you if you wanted to dance They're looking for a little romance Given half a chance I have never seen that dress you're wearing Or the highlights in your hair that catch your eyes I have been blind The lady in red Both Abu Zubaydah and Tupac Shakur, in their different ways, were part of something that had begun 200 years before with the French Revolution. It was the idea that through revolution, you could break through to a new kind of world, something beyond the corrupt reality of this one. But at this same moment, a completely new way of seeing the world was rising up in America. It's said that all attempts to change the world through revolution would always fail. Because the world was too complicated for anyone to be able to predict the consequences of their actions. It came from engineers and scientists who were using computers to model the way the world behaved. The difference between the modus simulation and the advice modus is quite accurate. It will not match this data in time. The simulation would determine how long it took. They saw the world as a series of complex systems. Populations of animals, flocks of birds, whole human societies and even global weather patterns were all complex systems that you could recreate as models inside the computers. But when the scientists did this, the computers began to reveal something they hadn't expected. One tiny change in their equations could have massive, catastrophic consequences, which they could never have predicted. It was called chaos theory. But we're beginning to learn that very simple laws, very simple equations, can generate astonishingly complicated dynamical behavior, apparently random behavior, which we call chaos. So the bad news is, we can have nothing random in the system, everything is known, 
And yet we cannot make long-term predictions about the future because the fluttering of a butterfly's wing will disturb the initial conditions. Chaos theory had a very powerful influence in the West because it rose up at the very moment the Soviet Union was collapsing. And it seemed to explain why all attempts at revolution had led to disaster. The world was just too complex for human beings to change in a predictable way. But in the 1990s, as the computers became more powerful, the scientists argued that even though human beings would never be able to understand the complexity, the computers could be used to see hidden underlying patterns and make the chaos manageable. This new idea was called complexity theory. One of its main promoters was the man who had discovered the elementary particles of all matter, quarks. He was called Murray Gell-Mann, and he believed that there were underlying patterns at every level of the universe. Not just in the particles, but in the way people think, in the structure of human societies, and even in the languages they spoke. You're always looking for patterns in nature. Yes. Well, what's so Patterns in the way people think. Patterns in the elementary particles. It's all part of the same way of doing things, I suppose. Trying to spot the law, trying to spot the relationship. The customs of primitive people, uh, languages and the relations among them. And it's fascinating to try to figure out what these laws are. As complexity theory spread, it seemed to offer a new way of managing societies by using computers to analyze vast amounts of data. That would bypass the failed political ideas that had always led to disaster in the past. But it brought with it a deeply conservative idea that was going to be the foundation of today's computer-dominated world. It said that what you are looking for in the data are the underlying laws that govern the systems as they already exist. You never ask why those systems came to exist and who benefits from them existing. One of the leading complexity scientists insisted that the meaning of any system was irrelevant. I don't understand what meaning is, he said. In science, there is no meaning to anything. It doesn't ask the atom why it is going left when it is subjected to a magnetic field. It just observes and describes. A man's man gun. A man that go kill with this is really mad. It will kill. This you better watch out. Is a M1 carbine, 32 rounds. I can go tap Lewis Park with this. I can kill about 32 people if I hit them all. Guns. All about shooting, taking them out. Yes. And when they come shoot us, we go back and shoot them. As he became more successful, Tupac Shakur dramatized in his music what he called the thug life. His aim, he said, was not to try and stop the violence, but to make those in the gangs who were killing each other realize that they could turn the violence outwards instead and fight back against those who really oppressed them. 
Shakur had begun to suspect that maybe many people didn't really want change, that they were happy living in their own fairy tale world of gangs and violence. Now, if we do want to live the thug life and the gangster life and all of that, okay, so stop being cowards and let's have a revolution. But we don't want to do that. Dudes just want to live a, a, um, a character. They want to be cartoons. Mm -hmm. But if they really wanted to do something that was that tough, all right, let's start our own country. Let's start a revolution. Let's get out of here. Let's do something. But they don't want to do that. In response, Shakur was accused by a number of the gangs of simply using them, that he was sucking out details of their lives and then acting it out in his music to make himself rich, that he wasn't real. In response, Tupac tried to become more and more part of that world to prove his authenticity. But then the black radicals accused him of getting lost in the character he had created. But really, he was reinforcing and intensifying the violence, not changing it. One radical wrote, Thug ambition is completely predatory because it is driven by an individualism that deliberately avoids the fellow feeling and the group solidarity needed by revolutionaries. In 1994, Shakur was sent to jail for five months for raping a 17-year-old girl. Shakur found himself in the new world of mass incarceration in America. Driven by fears of a wave of violent crime, President Clinton had brought in tough new crime laws, even though in reality, crime was falling. Hundreds of thousands of young black men were now imprisoned with no hope of parole, even for minor offences. It seemed to show that President Clinton cared more about the fears of the white middle-class voters than he did about the lives of young black men. while the white radicals, who were buying Tupac Shakur's music, did nothing to challenge it. By moving radical politics into the world of culture, Tupac Shakur had also become part of the fairy tale world, because he helped keep the anger and the dissent sealed off from the real world of politics and power. And now, he was all alone. Trust nobody. Trust no body after dark you know what i mean straight mm -hmm. up my closest friends did me in my mm -hmm. closest friends my homies people who i done took care of their whole family i done took care of everything for them looked out for them put them in the game everything turned on me fear is stronger than love remember that mm -hmm. fear is stronger than love all the love i gave didn't mean nothing when it came to fear so it's all good but i'm a soldier i always survive i constantly come back you know what i mean only thing that can kill me is death that's the only thing that ever stopped me is death one night at the end of 1991, Abu Zubaydah was part of a group of jihadists attacking the city of Gardez in Afghanistan. 
They were trying to overthrow the communist regime left behind by the Russians three years before. But then suddenly, a mortar exploded next to Abu Zubaydah and a piece of shrapnel pierced his skull. It went into his brain and his whole way of seeing and understanding the world suddenly changed. The next day he was taken back from the front line over the mountains to Peshawar. For two months he was unconscious. Then his memories from the past began to come back, but in a mass of fragments. Nothing linked them. They made no sense. So Zubaydah began to use his diary to write down all the flashes of memory, to try and make sense of who he was. In the end, it would run to over a thousand pages, a vast collage of memories and feelings Moments of intense loneliness as a child, of watching Pluto meet an angel in a Disney cartoon. Don't. Moments of fear in combat. The smell of perfume, the anger he felt at friends, moments of sexual desire, and the sensation of autumn coming on. When he had physically recovered, Abu Zubaydah went back to the jihad training camps in Afghanistan. But he found that whatever he did, he could not put his memories back together. They remained just fragments in his brain. He also had a growing sense that the whole organization of jihad was disintegrating into rival factions. All ideas of solidarity and collective action had gone. In the diary, he describes how you couldn't trust anyone any longer. Zubaydah knew bin Laden, who was running another jihad camp. Bin Laden asked him to make an alliance, but Zubaydah refused. He was aware that bin Laden was planning some kind of retaliation against the Americans, but he didn't trust him. Zubaydah spent his time making explosives and watching American movies like Rambo 3. Zubaydah wrote in his diary how up in the mountains, everything was falling apart. The revolutionary dream of Islamism was failing. Or his sense of who he was, his identity, had disintegrated into random memories. They meant nothing. There was no story that made sense. He wrote how it was as though time had stopped. He was trapped in a perpetual now, haunted by fragments of memory, with no way of moving forward into the future. But in the West, scientists were beginning to ask whether the very idea of an integrated self was actually a fiction for everyone. In the 1980s, the new group of behavioral psychologists had argued that what human beings think of as their self was not fully in control of their actions. Now, they had been joined by neuroscientists who said they had discovered something even stranger. 
that inside their brains, human beings had all kinds of different selves, which the conscious mind had no awareness of at all. They were led by Michael Gazzaniga, who would win a Nobel Prize for his work. With your right hand, you point to this row, and with your left hand, you point to this row. Gazzaniga okay. studied the brains of people like Vicky. She suffered from extreme epilepsy. To try and stop her attacks, surgeons had cut the nerve fibres that linked the two sides of her brain. It worked, but it also revealed something very strange. There was another force inside Vicky that emerged, that kept trying to take control. I knew what I wanted to wear and I would open up my closet, get ready to take it out. My other hand would like just take control. And it would just reach in and get something that I wouldn't want at all. And a couple times I had a pair of shorts on and I find myself putting another pair of shorts on on top of a pair I already had on, and which I knew was, I knew was wrong. Gazzaniga argued that really there were multiple selves inside the human brain each one taking control at different moments. Normally that is hidden, because the one self that is conscious constantly makes up stories to explain what all the other selves are doing. But when the connection between the two parts of the brain is cut, it can't do that. And the other parts emerge. Vicky wasn't strange, Gazzaniga said. She just showed the truth. Gazzaniga argued that really all human beings live in a made-up dream world of stories, which give them the illusion that they are in control. When really, there is something else inside them that they will never contact. We have to quit viewing man as a single psychological entity, that in fact his psychological self is a multiple self, that he has a variety of mental systems, uh, existing in his brain. They have emotions, they have memories, they have uh, incentives, they have destinies, and they're able to control the motor apparatus, by which I mean they're able to make movements, they're able to actually precipitate behaviors on the part of, of, of someone. And once those actions are completed, here comes this verbal system in to give an explanation and to, and to propose a theory to itself to explain why these actions were carried out. The 1990s was the high point of the idea of individualism. With all the old revolutions gone, it promised the vision of a new world of free, confident people. But what was happening was that the sciences that had grown up with that individualism were now turning on it and eating away at it. Complexity theory said that human beings were just components in vast, complex systems systems that they would never be able to understand. Which meant that what they thought and what they felt was irrelevant to the system. While psychology, and now neuroscience, said that much of what went on inside people's brains was beyond their control. Which meant that the conscious bit inside the brain, the part that applies meaning to the world, was actually irrelevant. Bit by bit, the idea of the world as something that human beings could understand and change 
was disappearing. Human consciousness was being sidelined. In 1996, Tupac Shakur was shot in Las Vegas. He was taken to hospital in a critical condition. Six days later, he died. Still today, no one knows who shot him. The suspicion and the lack of trust that he had come to feel was now spreading through the black community. And in that mood, a new conspiracy theory was rising up. It said that the crack epidemic in black areas had been created by the CIA and the US government. And the feelings of suspicion and paranoia spread even further. This show is about finding some truth. Was the CIA responsible for, in any way, shape, or form, funneling cocaine into the United States of America back in the early 80s and then helped to develop and turn it into crack, which was then spread across America and is the reason why most of our inner cities are in the plight that they are in. So we're right between that house and this house. We're renting this half of a house. All right, so this is our garage. Basically, nobody's in here, but we got ping pong table, computer. But there was still a group of idealists at the heart of Silicon Valley who still believed that individuals could remake the world, and they could help them do it in a new way. It wouldn't confront the old systems of power. It would simply bypass them. There's Larry, CEO of Google. At Google, our mission is to make the world's information accessible and useful. And that means all of the world's information, uh, which now in our index numbers over a billion documents. And it's an incredible resource. I mean, in history, you have never had access to just, you know, pretty much all the world's information in seconds. And we have that now. My hope is to provide instant access to any information anybody ever wants in the future. I think I want to make the world a better place. The idealism behind Google was the same vision that had been behind the Family of Man exhibition 40 years before. It said that everyone could use the information to build their own story, free of the old elites who in the past had controlled what they read and what they saw. But it would also link them together one world at the centre of which would be the individual self assembling the data in any way they wanted. But in Russia, that same dream was now seen to have led to disaster. At the start of the 1990s, a giant experiment had begun to transform the country into a free market democracy. But it had gone disastrously wrong. Tiro, 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 tiro. Tiro, tiro, tiro. 
Russia had been taken over by a small group called the oligarchs, who had looted the country of much of its wealth. And the idea that Russia could become a society of free individuals was now seen as a joke. No one believed in communism or democracy any longer. What does it mean? What does democracy mean then for most Russians, not in Moscow? But unfortunately, uh, well, word socialism has lost its meaning and its value in this country ten years ago. After ten years, democracy is a kind of a curse. You can curse. You can offend someone by naming him a democrat. So this is the answer to your question. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. In 1999, the oligarchs decided to select Russia's next president to make sure it was someone who would protect them. And they selected Vladimir Putin. He was an anonymous bureaucrat running the security service and a man who believed in nothing. With their money and the media they controlled backing him, Putin was duly elected. The oligarchs believed that they were now safe and their power would continue undisturbed. But then something unexpected happened. In August of 2000, the nuclear submarine Kursk set out on the first Navy exercise since the fall of the Soviet Union. As a torpedo was being loaded, it exploded, and the submarine sank to the ocean floor. To begin with, the Russian Navy didn't notice that anything had happened. Then they began to search for the Kursk, but they couldn't find it. The families of the crew came to the base of Murmansk. The officials assured them that they were in contact with the crew. But this was a lie. They knew that all 118 sailors were already dead. The families grew desperate. <laughs> To begin with, Putin did nothing. He had no idea how to react. But finally, he was forced to come to Momansk to confront the angry families in a closed meeting. What Putin then did to save himself was turn that anger away from himself and towards the very people who had put him in power. The people who killed your sons, he told the families, were the corrupt elites in Moscow, the oligarchs who have all the money and control all the media. They are the ones who are lying to you. They are the ones who have destroyed the army and the navy. They are the ones who have stolen everything and have everyone in their pocket. 
Faced by a catastrophe, what Putin had discovered was a new source of power. It was the raw anger of those outside the major cities in Russia who felt lonely and isolated as their jobs and lives had collapsed around them. They had been promised a democracy, but what they got was chaos and corruption on a vast scale. And Putin had realized the power that anger could give him. But he himself still believed in nothing. He had been taken and placed in power, and he had no goal. The Russian journalist Mikhail Zygar wrote, there is no logic in the age of Putin. There is no plan or strategy. Everything that happens, like with the Kursk, is a tactical step, a real-time response to external stimuli devoid of any ultimate objective. By the start of 2000, Silicon Valley had become the focus of a giant financial boom. Wall Street banks were pouring millions of dollars into small companies that they knew were unlikely to ever make any real profit. Their real aim was to create massive share price rises when they took the companies public on the stock exchange. But then the bubble suddenly burst. Companies that only weeks before had been valued at billions of dollars disappeared overnight. Their technology auctioned off in fire sales. We have $100,000 computers with eight processors and 10 hard drives and just decked out with you know, gigs of RAM, and that, that stuff's going for 10 cents, 20 cents on the dollar. Google managed to survive, but the crash meant that they met the power of money, which was going to reshape their aims completely. The venture capitalists who had invested in the company now had the upper hand. They told Sergey Brin that he had to find a way to make money, and quickly. And a sense of emergency gripped Google. But then they found the solution. Every time someone searched the web, they left trails behind them, traces as they traveled through the internet. Up to this point, that mass of data had simply been used to make the system of giving people information more efficient. But now, the company's engineers realized that if they gathered enough of it together, they could build up a picture of how every individual behaved and how they were likely to behave in the future. It meant they could predict what advertisement an individual would click on and respond to without having to ask them anything. Google started to tell advertisers that they had found a way of replacing the hit and miss of old advertising with a new scientific certainty. And very quickly, they began to make millions of dollars. But there was a problem. What Google were doing was gathering vast amounts of data on millions of people without them being fully aware of it. And by 2001, the Federal Trade Commission was preparing a law which would stop much of what they were doing. But then suddenly, many of those problems disappeared. The attacks on September the 11th shocked America because no one had seen them coming. 
the phrase constantly used was, we failed to join up the dots. And in the state of fear, the government passed the Patriot Act. It said that everyone's personal data must be open to examination to stop further attacks. Privacy of the individual now became irrelevant in the face of a much higher need, security. It meant that the very thing that Google had invented, looking for patterns in a mass of data, now became central to the security of the United States. And the threat of new laws to stop Google collecting as much data on people as they wanted faded away. The shock of the attacks of 9-11 began a shift away from the individualism that had been at the centre of America since the 1950s. And Google was going to become central to that shift. Because rather than doing what they had originally dreamed of, giving people data so they could make their own stories, what Google were now doing was taking people's data and using it to predict what those individuals would do without having to ask them anything. What they thought or felt as individuals and the stories they told themselves was completely irrelevant. Consciousness was being sidelined even more. When the coalition invaded Afghanistan, Abu Zubaydah had fled. He had not been involved in the attacks, but he knew that the Americans were arresting all the jihadists they could find. He travelled back over the mountains and hid in Faisalabad in Pakistan. But two months later, he was captured. Within months of September the 11th, 2001, we captured a man named Abu Zubaydah. We believe that Zubaydah was a senior terrorist leader and a trusted associate of Osama bin Laden. Zubaydah was severely wounded during the firefight that brought him into custody. These are dangerous men with unparalleled knowledge about terrorist networks and their plans of new attacks. Zubaydah was taken by the CIA to a secret prison they ran in Pakistan. He told them that he had had nothing to do with the attacks, but they didn't believe him. Then they read his diary that he had written to himself. And the CIA decided it meant that Zubaydah had a multiple personality, and that the other, hidden self, was hiding the information they desperately needed. So the CIA turned to psychology to unlock the information they knew was concealed inside his head. Is this the new positive psychology class? Yes, it is. So what is this positive psychology stuff? Is the rest of the field negative? Well, that's not really the case. Positive psychology is the study of the psychological aspects of what makes life worth living. It simply focuses on building the best in people as opposed to repairing the worst. I see. 
I need to get to my next class. Catch you later. Thank you for helping me learn more about this fascinating field. Positive psychology was part of the new psychology that had risen up in the 1990s. It said that millions of people were really far weaker than previously thought. That they were trapped in a state of what the psychologists called learned helplessness. And positive psychology would develop techniques to rescue these people. But psychologists working for the CIA decided they would turn the system in reverse. They would use it to reduce Abu Zubaydah back to a state of learned helplessness. They called it enhanced interrogation. And they did it by waterboarding Zubaydah 83 times, by repeatedly smashing him against the wall and locking him naked in a freezing box for weeks at a time. The CIA videotaped the interrogations, but later destroyed the tapes. They reportedly show Abu Zubaydah screaming, shaking uncontrollably and vomiting. What was done to him became the model for a system of torture that the Americans then used across the war on terror, including the prisoner at Abu Ghraib. Desperate for the torture to stop, Zubaydah just spewed out all the disconnected memories inside his brain. Memories that even he had not been able to piece together. They were fragmented images of what might happen in America, many of them drawn from the films he had watched, including Godzilla. And that same sense of incoherent confusion was now unleashed on America. The CIA believed them, and the fragments inside Abu Zubaydah's brain now spread out across America to create yet another wave of fear. But there were more and more people who were beginning to realize that out in the margins of Western societies, there was a growing anger and a total disillusion with the system because it offered hundreds of thousands of people nothing and gave their lives no purpose or meaning. I was brought up in a working class way, in a working class background. I were lucky, I, I were good at school, I were academically minded, I were quick, I could make people laugh, you know what I mean? I could do things, I could chat and still get on with my work. Most people couldn't do that. There were people genuinely who were fantastic with working with their hands, but the other five hours of the day, they were just miserable. It's just not set up to cater for working class lads who were that way inclined. There's just no end goal. There's no end point, there's no path. There's just get on with it is the main phrase that you hear constantly. And that messes with your mind after a while. Dominic Cummings worked as a political advisor for the Conservative Party. But he believed that all politicians, left and right, had completely lost touch with the people they were supposed to represent. Cummings came from the Northeast, and he had seen the disillusion and the anger that had been growing there ever since a wave of factory closures in the late 1990s. The Labour government had insisted that there was nothing they could do in the face of what was called globalism. 
But Cummings wanted to find a way to remake politics, so it could challenge these new forms of unaccountable power. And the way to do that, he believed, was by using complexity theory. Cummings was fascinated by the founder of complexity theory, Murray Gell-Mann. Because Cummings believed that Gell-Mann's ideas explained why politicians like Tony Blair had failed to stand up against the force of globalization. The systems of power, like international finance, were now so complex that politicians could never predict what effect their policies would have. So they had stopped trying to control them and simply let them rip. But complexity theory, he believed, would allow you to understand and control these new forces. Because if you looked at the world as a series of complex systems, you would find that there were underlying patterns. It's a very simple point, but very important one to think about sheer com complexity. If you look around at um, social networks, physical networks, mental networks, they consist of, they consist of complicated, non-linear and independent systems. In these networks, properties emerge from the interaction of lots of different agents. You can't tell what's going to happen just by looking at a single agent. So, for example, if you look at ant colonies, you have lots of interacting ants. And from this, you have emergent behaviours like farming, slavery and war that you can never predict from a single ant. The extreme complexity means that prediction is extremely difficult, over, even over tiny timescales. It means... This scale of complexity means you can't have centralized control. There's no master ant, there's no master neuron, there's no master immune cell. Cummings wanted to use data and computers to see the underlying patterns in modern society, and then use that knowledge to take power back from the unelected elites who had seized control. But to do that, he was going to have to find a way to harness the anger and the disenchantment that was growing in the country. But Cummings was not alone. Across the world, there was a growing feeling that politics had completely lost touch with the people and was therefore losing its power to hold society together. In China, the children of those who had led the Cultural Revolution were now in power. They were called the princelings. We are very happy to invite the newly elected members of the Standing Committee of the Political Bureau of the 17th Central... On the surface, the China they ruled over was a powerful country. It had a rich and rapidly growing middle class. And China was also pouring money into a rapidly growing military force. But what had been buried and forgotten was any guiding ideology, any confident story about what this was all for. Instead, money had filled the void. And that now seemed to be dissolving the bonds that held society together. There was an extraordinary wave of organised crime sweeping through Chinese cities. Vast amounts of government money was being stolen and smuggled abroad. But at the centre of the corruption was land and property. On the edge of the new giant cities, 
Organised gangs were forcing farmers out of their houses at gunpoint and seizing their land. What's happening is quite literally a massive land grab. Those with political power or money and political connections are doing everything they can to take control of land. And the reason is very simple. Today in China, land is extremely valuable. It's in demand for all sorts of things, for housing developments like this one, for factories, for shopping malls. Making money was never easier. What made the corruption so widespread was that under communism, no one was allowed to own land. All the land was owned by the party, which meant that hundreds of thousands of party officials were being bombarded by bribes and threats from organized crime, wanting to get the land. And corruption spread on an extraordinary scale. The government's chief advisor, Wang Huning, called it ultra-corruption. He said it was so extensive that it was hollowing out the whole political system of control. The country, he said, risked fragmenting into the anarchy of the 1920s, when hundreds of separate areas were controlled by rival warlords. But one man decided he was going to make a stand against this. He was called Bourgelai. He was at the heart of the Chinese elite. Bo's father had been one of the leaders of the revolution with Mao Zedong. But in the Cultural Revolution, Mao had turned on Bo's father and he was brutally beaten. And Bo's mother was killed mysteriously. Bo himself had been a Red Guard, but was sent to a labor camp for five years. But Bo now announced that he was going to bring back the dreams from that time. In 2007, Bo was made the head of the city of Chongqing. Chongqing was one of the biggest cities in the world. It had a population of 32 million people. And Bo decided to use the city as a laboratory for a giant experiment. He started to hold mass rallies in the city, which were broadcast live on television. And read songs from the Mao era were sung by thousands. Bohr said that the reason for the corruption in China was because there was no shared vision of the future, no aim or purpose other than money. And he was going to reawaken the idealism of the past. And he also passed sweeping laws to try and tackle the growing inequalities, subsidizing housing and education. And Bohr brought in a new police chief whose job was to root out the gangsters who had corrupted every part of the city government and were still demolishing thousands of people's houses. Bohr soon became famous and he was seen as a future leader. He and his wife, a lawyer called Gu Kailai, became a glamorous couple. They, like many others of the Chinese elite, had a fascination for old England. Many of the estates being built for the new rich in China's cities 
were designed to look like an imaginary version of England's past. Bo and Gu decided to send their son to an English public school, Harrow. And it led them to meet an Englishman who had come to China called Neil Haywood. He had also been to Harrow and he helped their son. And he soon became close to the family. Haywood also lived in the old dreams of England from a time when it was powerful. He dropped hints that he worked for MI6 and he drove around Beijing in an Aston Martin with the number plate 007. Haywood used his friendship with the family to make a property deal in Chongqing. But then, for some reason, the deal went wrong and Haywood blamed Gu Kailai. At the same time, rumours started to come from the centre in Beijing that what Bo Zhilai was doing in Chongqing might not be as idealistic as it seemed. in Russia, there were those who were also trying to attack and expose the emptiness and the corruption that had taken over the society there. In 2007, members of the small National Bolshevik Party that was led by Edward Lomonov burst into the finance ministry in Moscow. They wanted to make people realize the corruption of Russia hadn't gone away. It was now spreading even deeper into the society. Putin had to go. They were arrested and 39 of them were put on trial together in a giant cage. I believe we are the most effective organization of Russia who irritates the government, but very effective. Uh, very effective that clumsy police state cannot struggle against us. 39 young people behind bars more than six months. What they said, they said, we want Putin to go out. Putin's other main opponent was the journalist, Anna Politkovskaya. What Putin had done, she said, was simply take the vast corruption that had begun with the oligarchs and shift it 
into the public sector. So the civil servants, the managers, and the intelligence agents around Putin all now benefited. One of them put it simply, why take handouts from billionaires if you can become a billionaire yourself? Bolikovskia said that the society Putin had created was one in his own image. It too believed in nothing. He became president without any program, without any words. If there was independent television, they would tear Putin apart piece by piece. He has nothing to debate. He has no program. He has no personality. He has no interests. The bureaucrats have made literally millions together with their families. I think they were very happy with Putin. They knew he would create favorable conditions in which corruption could flourish. Three months after the interview, Anna Politkovskia was shot outside her apartment in Moscow. But despite the shock and outrage, Nothing changed. Since Putin had come to power, the global price of oil had increased massively. Money had poured into Russia. One journalist described what happened. The country, he said, rode through the first decade of the 21st century in a state of semi-oblivion, in a dream world of consumption. Like Bourgeois in China, Edward Limonov believed that the only way to escape from this empty world was to bring back the old dreams from the past. But in his case, the communism was mixed with a fascist nationalism. billions and at the heart of it was data it had become a new gold rush products of more and more companies around the world were set up to mine all the traces of human behavior everywhere and nothing was quite what it seemed the makers of Roomba revealed that new models would also be able to gather and transmit information about the inside of people's homes people though they added could always turn this off if they wanted. Hi, I'm Tristan, Global Passion Ambassador for WeVibe, Couples Vibrator. And even the vibrator, WeVibe, was discovered transmitting data about people's private behavior back to the servers. Good morning, Kayla. Good morning. I love the morning, don't you? While the German government instructed parents hungry? to destroy any models of Kayla the doll because it contained what they called a concealed espionage device that could also transmit personal data about the behavior of the whole family. And Pokemon Go, which was created by a subsidiary of Google, 
was more than just a game. As well as extracting even more data from the player's phones, it was also what one researcher described as persuasive gaming. An experiment to see if you could move mass groups of people around to where you wanted them. As well as having fun, the players could also be guided to what was called sponsored locations, cafes and bars that would pay to be a part of the system. One journalist described the aim. Pokemon, she said, is about herding people to monetize checkpoints without them being fully aware of it. All this was not only creating a world where human behavior could be predicted, it was going to do something else. Something that scientists and engineers had been struggling with for 50 years. It was finally going to solve the problem of how to create real artificial intelligence. But it would do it by creating machines that could see a different kind of reality. One that was hidden from human beings. The key figure who did this was a psychologist called Geoffrey Hinton. He was the great-great-grandson of George Boole, who had invented Boolean logic that is behind all the algorithms in modern computers. In the 1990s, Hinton realised that the idea that you can create AI by feeding rules of human logic into the machines had completely failed. What Hinton said was that you do the opposite. You get rid of all the rules of logic and instead feed a mass of data into the computer and let it look for its own connections and patterns. He used what were called neural networks, where the connections inside the computer mimicked the human brain. Back in the 90s, there was a completely different paradigm that wasn't called artificial intelligence, it was called neural networks, that said, we know about an intelligence system, it's the brain. And the way that works is you have lots of little processes with lots of connections between them, and you change the strengths of the connections, and that's how you learn things. And those connection strengths change have to somehow be driven by data. You're not programmed. You somehow absorb information from data. And you can't do it with rules. There's too many rules to write. You just have to learn it from data. Now, that data was available online and Hinton began to feed millions of words and images into the machines and instructed them to look for patterns. To learn a language, the neural network would look for which particular words appeared next to each other in the billions of sentences they were scanning and which were far apart. The machine is not interested in the meaning of the sentence, only the patterns. It was a completely different way of making sense of reality. Human beings told themselves stories about what was happening around them minute by minute. Hinton's neural networks were a kind of intelligence that completely ignored all stories. Instead, they crossed back and forth across time and space as they searched through data on the internet, looking for links and patterns that human beings would never be able to see or understand. began to work on artificial intelligence at Google and he gave what he had created a name. He called it Vector World. It expressed what was becoming one of the most powerful mythologies of our age. 
the idea that had begun with complexity theory in the early 1990s. It said that the world is too complicated for us as human beings to understand. But nothing is too complicated for the machines and the data, for they can see the hidden reality under the surface. And this new fragmented way of ordering reality into patterns was going to spread. And as it did, it would detach human beings even further from understanding what was happening in the real world. In the banks, computers were being used to package the vast amounts of mortgages that were being lent in the property boom to everyone and anyone. The computers cut up the dangerous high-risk loans and recombined them with other safer loans. The bankers believed that this neutralised the risk and stabilised the system. But as they did this, the connection of the debts to human reality was broken. Instead, they simply became patterns of millions of fragments of meaningless data moving harmlessly around the system in the server farms. What had happened was that the bankers, the risk analysts, the rating agencies, the accountants and the politicians had all given themselves up to this new way of thinking. A way of thinking that said that the data and the algorithms understood the complexity of the world better than you did. Which meant that none of them saw the absurdity of what was really happening. A vast wave of money was being lent to millions of poor people who could never afford to pay it back. But then it got more complicated because human beings were also exposed to the avalanche of data online. And they started to behave in very much the same way as Geoffrey Hinton's artificial intelligence machines. They too spent vast amounts of time searching through all the data, looking for patterns, links and coincidences that had no obvious meaning. But being human beings, they then turned them into fantastic, elaborate stories. They were called conspiracy theories. Forty years before, Kerry Thornley and his friend Greg Hill had started what they called Operation Mindfuck. They had spread the conspiracy theory that the Illuminati were really the secret rulers of the world. They had done it to parody and ridicule all conspiracy theories, because they thought that they undermined the confidence of individuals and made them easier to control. But now, in the mass of data online, those stories about the Illuminati got mixed up with other conspiracies, both true and false. And out of it came extraordinary, dreamlike stories built out of fragments of truth and fiction. Millions of people became convinced that all the major stars, from Britney Spears to Beyonce, were being manipulated and controlled by the Illuminati. The theory said that the Illuminati had worked with the CIA and their MKUltra project, and with Walt Disney, 
to create a new system of mind control. The star's videos contained hidden messages. Above all, images of triangles put there by the Illuminati. Telltale clues to what is really happening. Shaka had attacked the way the black community was already in the 1990s retreating into conspiracy theories about the Illuminati. They were doing it, he said, to avoid confronting the very real powers that did control their lives. Turmoil on the American housing market gets even worse and the aftershocks wipe tens of billions off world stock markets. The organizations which underpin mortgage lending in America need a multi-billion dollar bailout. In 2008, the systems and the banks that had structured the mortgage loans failed completely. It led to a global economic crash. The governments in Britain and America rescued the banks. But they then decided to transfer the debt that incurred away from the private sector to the public sector. And what was called austerity began. That decision was going to have powerful consequences because it created anger among millions of people outside the system. Then in the wake of the crash, evidence of widespread corruption came out, that all the major banks had been rigging interest rates and many of them had been laundering money for organised crime, including the drug cartels in Mexico. But again, nothing seemed to change. A few lowly people were prosecuted, and experts talked of reforms and stress tests. And the shock among those outside the system grew further. And from that came the reaction. It was the elites and people like you and me people that bought into the system. And who's been held accountable? Name me one banker, one CEO, one law firm, one accounting firm. We basically just flooded the zone with liquidity. We bailed out the party of Davos. But let me say it differently. The party of Davos, the scientific, engineering, managerial, financial, cultural elite, bailed themselves out. Just remember, this populist movement in Donald Trump is not the cause of this. They're the product of this. And it worked on different levels. It wasn't, it was, the most obvious level was we've got to take back control from Brussels, but it was also, uh, and I think David Cameron and George Osborne didn't quite appreciate this, it was also about taking back control from, uh, of, of, the, of the system itself. It was for a lot of people to take back control, made them think, yeah, these are the guys who screwed up the economy, who drove it off a cliff in 2008, whose mates are all the Goldman Sachs bankers and the hedge funders on massive bonuses. Us mugs on PAYE are the ones paying the, paying the bills for this. We'll show those guys. We'll take back control from you lot in London. For Dominic Cummings, 
Brexit was not an end in itself. For him, it was a way of getting rid of the failed elites and the old political systems that ran Britain. In their place, he was going to use modern network technologies and data to transform an old decaying society. But what Cummings hadn't reckoned with was how the campaign that he had begun would awaken ghosts from Britain's past. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage leader of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage. And how they would reach out to possess Brexit and modern Britain. At the end of 2011, the body of a British man was discovered in the Lucky Holiday Hotel in Chongqing. It was Neil Haywood, who had been friends with Bourgelai and his wife. There were rumours that he had been murdered. Did a British man die here? Don't know. Don't take interviews. But do you know if it's factually true that that happened? Did that actually happen? Yeah, yeah, we go, we go. Okay. After the body was found, Boar's police chief came to him and he told him that Boar's wife had arranged the murder because Haywood was threatening to reveal that she had been illegally moving large amounts of money abroad. The police chief then fled to the American consulate in nearby Chengdu because he feared that Boar was going to kill him. And he told the press that Boar and his wife were really ruthless gangsters who had brought corruption to the very top of the Communist Party. What then came out shocked China. It was alleged that while Bo had portrayed himself as an idealistic hero and paraded gangsters and corrupt officials in front of the cameras, he and his police chief had really been using extreme violence and torture, taking millions from organised criminals and bribes from property developers and then keeping the money for themselves. While Bo sang songs praising Mao Zedong, he had really just been using those revolutionary ideas as a smokescreen to hide corruption that went to the very heart of the city government. But Bo Zhilai denied all the allegations. He came to the party conference in Beijing and insisted that what was happening was an attempt to smear him by the corrupt networks that he was rooting out in Chongqing. No one knew who to believe. There were rumours that really it was an even more complex plot by his rivals in Beijing to stop Bo from getting power. And in the middle of the conference, he and his wife were arrested and thrown into jail.
Suddenly, at the end of 2011, a wave of protests burst out in Russia. As well as Pussy Riot, one night a young internet blogger called Alexei Navalny got up on a platform and he chanted the phrase that redefined Russia for what up to then had been an apolitical generation. Putin was furious. It was complete hypocrisy. He had given the new Russian middle classes prosperity. Now they were stabbing him in the back. He grew increasingly paranoid, fearful that those groups who had benefited from the corruption would turn against him. And to protect himself, he shapeshifted again. Putin did the very thing that Edward Limonov had called for. He created a new organization called the Popular Front to promote Russian nationalism. But Putin went much further than Lomonov, because he summoned up a dark, frightening vision from Russia's past. It said that Russia as a whole, what was called Eurasia, was the last defense against a corrupt West that was trying to take over the whole world. It was a great power nationalism, that challenged America's idea of its exceptionalism. What Putin was promoting was Russian exceptionalism. It was epitomized by the Nighthawks, an extreme nationalist motorcycle club who announced that they were now Putin's bodyguards. The Nighthawks put on mass shows that dramatized the paranoid conspiracy theory that America, led by Barack Obama and the bankers, and the Illuminati, were planning to undermine Vladimir Putin and destroy Russia. In the West, after the crash, the bankers had also now become the villains. They were at the centre of conspiracy theories that said that they were running a global system of corruption. A wave of leaked documents seemed to show that the city of London 
had become the centre of an international network that was being used to hide the illegal fortunes of kleptocrats from all around the world. Hundreds of billions, it was alleged, was being taken through London and then hidden in a network of secretive offshore territories that anti-corruption investigators called the Second Empire. But the problem was, no one could actually find out how much of this was really true. Because of something else the City of London had always prided itself on from the time of the Empire, its discretion. How's the market? Turn. It's not much doing. Nothing else? Is it to you? I'll give you a symptom tape, Neil. Sorry, old man. Wrong way, I'm afraid. Is that all? Has he done it? No, he's evidently not satisfied. He'll try somewhere else. Now, the discretion that the city was still so proud of had in reality turned into a force shield that stopped any proper investigation of what was really going on. Eminent law firms immediately issued libel writs to anyone trying to find out what was happening. But by suppressing any real information, the suspicions grew that there was a dark, frightening world of dictators, drug lords, Russian gangsters, arms dealers and international bankers, all thriving together in the shadows of the City of London. Which reinforced the idea that the world was bewilderingly complicated and way beyond our control. In China, Gu Kailai was put on trial for poisoning Neil Haywood. She had confessed, the court said, and she was given a suspended death sentence. Then her husband, Bo Zhilai, was put on trial in the city of Jinan. He denied all the charges of corruption. But outside the court, something unexpected began to happen. As you can see, Jinan's never seen anything like it. There are huge crowds here watching the media, watching the trial, and everybody who has any sort of grievance, any sort of complaint against the local government or the national government is here to try and get it aired. To make their case, they've been thrusting pieces of paper into my hands. What happened outside the court in Jinan? gave a glimpse of the widespread anger and frustration in China with the ruling system and its corruption. Forces simmering under the surface of the society. The party leaders were split on how to deal both with what Bourgeois had done and the forces of anger that had now unleashed. When Jibao, who was the premier, 
said that the problem was that the party had never confronted what had happened during Mao's time. Unless you have political reform and open up the society for democratic debate, Wen said, those ghosts will always threaten. But others disagreed. Above all, the man who had just been appointed the next party secretary, Xi Jinping. His family, like Boris, had been at the very centre of the frightening forces that Mao Zedong had unleashed. One journalist wrote, They want to keep that great black box that conceals the struggles and the brutality upon which China has built its staggering economic transformation firmly closed. And to keep it closed, Xi Jinping decided to turn China into a giant system in which everyone's behaviour could be predicted, managed and controlled. The aim was to learn from the data how all the individuals linked together in the society so their behaviour could be predicted, like components in a system. But there was a further aim to adjust the behaviour of people so they would fit better into the system. It was called algorithmic governance. And if the data from all the different sources showed a person behaving well, buying the right food for their children, not cheating at computer games, and not jaywalking, then they would be given what were called social credits. This would then give them rewards, from discounts on bills to getting better visibility on dating sites, even avoiding the queue to pay to see a doctor. Fifty years before, an American psychologist called B.F. Skinner had become notorious when he had outlined just such a society. Skinner had shown how he could easily alter the behaviour of animals, like pigeons, by using a simple system of rewards. He called it operant conditioning. In this experiment, he must peck at the cross ten times before the food is forthcoming. After four or five sessions, the pigeon learns the routine perfectly and pecks at the cross wherever he sees it without being in the least upset at being made to work for his living. Now that produces in a rat or a pigeon or a monkey or, and in a man, a very high rate of activity. And if you build up, you can get enormous amounts of behavior out of these organisms for very little pay. You don't need to give them very much to induce a lot of that. Now, a world in which a great many productive things occur on this schedule would be a wonderful world. Skinner wrote a novel called Walden Two that described a future utopia where all human behavior would be controlled through this kind of operant conditioning. 
It was a utopia, he said, because it would free society from all the dangerous and irrational impulses inside individuals' minds. All of that could be sealed off by managing people's behaviour with rewards and treats. Now, China had found a way of creating just such a system of managing people through the mass of data it was gathering. It was being used to create a whole society where what went on inside people's heads was completely irrelevant. Their rational thought and their feelings were all bypassed. It was only their observed behaviour that counted. And this allowed those in charge to bury and hide the anger and frustration that had been created in a society that was riddled with corruption and growing inequalities. And if people didn't respond to the treats, they could be forcibly reprogrammed, as it is alleged is happening in large re-education facilities in Xinjiang to hundreds of thousands of the Muslim Uyghur population. In the West, the corruption and the inequalities also continued to grow. The politicians seemed unable to do anything about it. But the technology systems were mutating, morphing into ever more extreme forms. And out of that was going to come a completely new kind of management and control in the modern world. Unlike in China, it wouldn't try and bury people's emotions and feelings. It would work by doing the very opposite, pushing and exaggerating those emotions to a pitch of continual hysteria and suspicion that would create a frozen world, paralysed by the distrust of everyone and everything. By now, the social media corporations had realised that intense emotions were the key to increased profits and what were called viral content factories were growing rapidly online. Their aim was to spread memes and other material that would create what they called high arousal emotions or activating emotions, such as lust and nostalgia and envy, or best of all, outrage. Because these were feelings that got people to pay attention longer and react more intensely which then translated into many more clicks and shares. Then in 2014, a group of psychologists working with Facebook announced that they had found a way to put hidden messages into people's news feeds that would then create specific moods and feelings without the individuals being aware of it. It was the moment when the psychologist's theories of priming or nudging fused with the power of the new technology. And it seemed to show that manipulation could work on an industrial scale. But when it was revealed, it also had another unintended effect. It began to sow a dark suspicion into people's minds because they no longer knew whether what they were feeling or thinking was their own really coming from outside sources. 
and for the machines, that was no problem, because suspicion was also another perfect high arousal emotion that they could feed off. And suspicion was about to spread uncontrollably across the internet. Because into this mix came two terrible shocks. The first was Brexit, the other was the election of Donald Trump. The shock of both these was enormous, especially for the liberal classes, who had always seen themselves as protecting the working class. They protested, but the shock was so intense that many people found it difficult to process what had happened. They couldn't imagine why the people had not only turned against them and their benign care, but also seemed to have voted against their own best interests. And to explain it, they latched on to the idea of hidden manipulation, that thousands of voters in America and in Britain had been manipulated online without them realising it. But then things became more complicated. Because evidence has started to come out from the world of science that questioned the whole idea that people could be manipulated in such a way. Psychology researchers had tried to repeat a number of the most important experiments that were the foundations of modern behavioural psychology. They were astonished to find that again and again, when they repeated the experiments, they failed to get the original results. It seemed that much of the evidence for priming just wasn't there. It got so bad that one of the most famous psychologists in the world, who had promoted the idea of priming, Daniel Kahneman, wrote an open email to the science of psychology. I see a train wreck looming, he said. We have become the poster child for doubts about the integrity of psychological research. Kahneman was frightened because it was undermining the idea that he had helped create. That in the human brain were systems that the conscious self was unaware of, but which you, the psychologist, could trigger unconsciously. But it also had wider implications because it meant that companies like Cambridge Analytica, who claimed that they could alter the way people behaved by priming, might just be exploiting the hysteria and the suspicion. The truth was that you might be able to keep millions of people in a state of constant anxiety online by bombarding them with memes, but you couldn't alter underneath what they thought and what they believed. people might be far stronger than the scientists believed. But it was too late, because once you believe you are being manipulated, there is no way back. Even being told you are not being manipulated might be manipulation. The liberal opposition became lost in an endless conspiracy theory constantly searching for hidden clues, links and fragments of evidence to prove that really Vladimir Putin and firms like Cambridge Analytica had orchestrated Brexit 
and the election of Donald Trump. It was a mood of hysteria that ran out of control. Whether the president of the United States was a Russian agent, let me say that again, whether the US president might have been working for the Russians. The walls closing in. As it appears, the walls are closing in uh, in terms of the Mueller investigation. The walls are closing in. The, the, the walls are closing in. I do feel that he feels the walls closing in on him. Legal walls are closing in on Donald Trump tonight. From a Democratic perspective, this is the president who feels like the walls are closing in. As he feels the walls are closing in. I think he's feeling the Russian investigation. I think he's feeling the wheels, the, the, the walls closing in on him. But what had really been manufactured by the hysteria and the suspicion was a constant source of those high arousal emotions that the machines needed. They didn't care about the meaning of what people thought or felt about Donald Trump. They just fed off the waves of paranoia, making the technology companies ever more profitable and powerful. But many of those old institutions who had been sidelined also found that by promoting the suspicions, they could regain their power. Trump is about to call me. Can't trust what they tell us. Major newspapers in America and in Britain that might have gone bankrupt without Donald Trump were rescued by the continual waves of conspiracy theories they revealed while the intelligence agencies, who only a few years before had been hated because they had invented the weapons of mass destruction, now became heroic truth-tellers, revealing ever more hidden conspiracies. And Vladimir Putin, whose power in reality was becoming increasingly fragile at home in Russia, became, in the eyes of the West, a dark, malevolent force, which made him seem far stronger than he really was. Так, друзья, обрадуем жителей данного подъезда, повесим Владимира Владимировича прямо в лифт. Так, ровненько, ровненько, ровненько. Отлично, кажется. Твою мать! О, ну что это? And for Donald Trump, the paranoia allowed him to hide the fact that he was doing nothing to get rid of the corruption in America as he had promised. His supporters, though, had their own conspiracy theory, QAnon that explained why nothing was happening. Trump was being stopped by a secret cabal of paedophiles in Washington. And for the Liberal opposition, it was a way of avoiding facing up to the genuine grievances and the very real anger in America that Trump's election had revealed. That he might be the product of a country where large areas had fallen into both desolation and despair towns where all the factories had closed. Millions had become addicted to opioids, and yet no one in power had come to rescue them. But the Liberals couldn't face this, because they too 
had no idea of how to solve those problems. And outside, in the real world, nothing actually changed. The structure of power, the inequalities and the decay all carried on unchecked. While all kinds of groups who wanted to cling on to power protected themselves behind this brittle shell of conspiracy theories built out of disconnected fragments. But it was a very fragile structure. And at this point, Google's engineers demonstrated how easily reality in this fragmented world could become strange and frightening. They created an AI program to learn how to see dogs. But they then showed how if they ran the algorithm backwards, the machines would alter the images of reality they were being fed, so they would see dogs everywhere. It was a world where anything could be anything, because there was no real meaning any longer. Then into this fragile structure came a catastrophe, COVID. Unlike the other catastrophes of the past 20 years, like 9-11 and the economic crash of 2008, the virus was a force that came from completely outside the systems of power. But it has come at a moment when many of the old certainties of this age are already cracking. Oh, I'm gonna shoot you in your head, you understand me? Don't you move, I'm gonna shoot you in your head, you hear me? But the virus did more than just accelerate the chaos. It has dramatically brought into focus just how deep the inequalities in modern Western societies have gone. The millions of low-paid workers who have to keep working to prevent the societies from collapsing are at much higher risk 
and those living in deprived areas are suffering much higher rates of illness and of death. Those who benefit from a system of power, it seems, are much safer than those who do not, but are also getting much richer as the markets keep rising in the pandemic. In the past, the shock of catastrophes has often led to a radical reorganization of societies. And it may be that even in the grim uncertainty of these days, that that same impulse to imagine other kinds of future will emerge. One possible future is that individualism will disappear, and with it, the very idea of individual freedom. As has already begun in China, data will be gathered and used on a massive scale to predict and manage all human behaviour in the way that the psychologist B.F. Skinner predicted. He said that individualism would be just a brief moment in history before science would find a way to manage and control everyone. You would, said Skinner, create a world that is beyond freedom and dignity. Skinner believes that the experimental analysis of behavior suggests that man's environment performs many of the functions once attributed to his inner feelings. A man feels free if he believes he is free, and he will believe he is free if he is conditioned by positive reinforcement to think so. His only hope is that he will come under the control of a natural and social environment which will enable him to pursue happiness successfully. Another possibility is that the future will be like the past. Many people are hoping that with the election of Joe Biden in America, it will be possible to return to an old stability, where individualism can continue to be managed by a benign elite. But although Donald Trump is gone and the Brexit deal done, what they both revealed was that underneath Western societies, there are enormous pressures building up that will not go away. While protests have broken out again in Russia, after the arrest of Alexei Navalny, tens of thousands came out onto the streets, demanding an end to the corrupt regime led by Vladimir Putin. The reality is that all these societies, not just America and Britain, but China and Russia too are exhausted, empty of any new ideas. All of them have corruption that has burrowed deep into their institutions, corruption that the politicians seem powerless to stop. While China, which many believe is a model for the future, is underneath a society not only riddled with corruption, but its growth is declining far more than the official figures reveal, while its population is rapidly aging. Far from being an alternative future, China may well be yet another old, decaying society that relies on a powerful surveillance system to maintain its power. Because it, too, has no other vision of the future. The third possibility is to try to imagine genuinely new kinds of futures, ones that have never existed before. But to do that, we as individuals will have to regain the confidence that we have lost in this frightened and uncertain time. 
but already the psychological theories that tell us we are weak and manipulable are cracking. And more and more people are beginning to realise that the fragmented emotions of anxiety and suspicion that they feel inside them may really be just the raw material for the technology corporations to feed off. It may be that we are really far stronger than we think. The one thing that is certain is that the world of the future will be different and that the people in that future will feel and think differently too. If we can regain our confidence, we will find that we have the power to influence how that future turns out. And as a first step, we have to start imagining what kind of future it is we want to build. The anthropologist and activist David Graeber, who died last year, described the forgotten idea that is waiting to be rediscovered and how thrilling it could be. The ultimate hidden truth of the world, he wrote, is that it is something we make and could just as easily make differently. Yeah. 